Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson and I'm the editor of the BJGP. In this episode, we talk to Professor Trisha Greenhouse from the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. And the paper is, Why do GPs rarely do video consultations? A qualitative study in UK general practice. Now, we know that the pandemic provided a really strong push to extend remote consultation services, but the fact is that video remains relatively infrequently used. First of all, I asked Trish to tell us a little bit about the background to this study. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been looking at video consultations for more than 10 years, so a long time before the pandemic. We've been interested in the potential for video to... uh, substitute for face-to-face consultations and add value uh, both in secondary care and in primary care. So it's got a big lot of research that, that we've done for many years. And against that background, when the pandemic happened, we uh, very quickly got a grant uh, called Remote by Default. Suddenly it was a, the default option to consult one's GP and indeed uh, a lot of secondary care appointments uh, were happening um, remotely, and of course, most of those were happening. <clears throat> pardon me. Of course, most of those were happening by telephone, but some were happening by video. Now, we'd already been doing some research on uh, the introduction of video consultations. The Scots were very uh, ahead of the game there, partly because of the, the, the geography of the country. A lot of people live in remote areas, so we'd been around Scotland looking at. Uh, places where people could kind of go into a booth and connect up by, by video. So that was the background. Um, And what we found was that this is a previous study was that during the early months of the pandemic, an awful lot of GPs, I think something like 98 percent of them actually got the technology for doing video consultations. And I think most of them had a go. And sometimes it was with the sort of relaxation of regulations. It was just through WhatsApp or, you know, kind of um, slightly unofficial means. Uh, But actually, there were some pretty good technologies developed, I won't name any of them, um, and they, they were linking with GP systems. And so we had this sort of acceleration of technology development Um, But then what happened after a few months was that it all walked back. So GPs introduced video consultations and then abandoned them. And one of my wider areas of interest is the abandonment of innovation. So everybody studies innovation. Hardly anyone studies the non-adoption or abandonment of, of innovation. We've now had the technological potential for video consulting for over 20 years, and yet still, right now, only about 1% of consultations happen by video. So this study, we interviewed patients, we interviewed GPs, we interviewed receptionists and other people who help organise uh, the uh, consultations, book the appointments. We interviewed the technology industry and we interviewed policymakers. Let me put all that together. Uh, And I think we found out why GPs very rarely use video and why they abandoned it. Yeah, I think you have. We'll come on to that in just a moment. But I just wanted to linger on that for a second, because it's actually mentioned in the discussion in particular that there's very much a pro-innovation bias in the literature. And it's not something I'd actually thought about that much, but it's very much like a kind of the publication bias we know exists anyway. It's, It's obviously a subset of that publication bias. So this is a really good example, a rare example of a study that actually explores that non-adoption and abandonment as well. 
Yeah, but it's also important to highlight that video consultations were not completely abandoned, that there are areas um, particular, which, which I'm sure you'll ask me about, there are areas where video really does add value. Uh, and the GPs we interviewed said, look, it's, it's not useful for most things, but please make sure you say in your paper that it is useful for uh, the following situations. And we had some wonderful examples where video came into its own. It's just that they're not very common. Yeah, we'll definitely come on to those to get you to mention a few of them. And there's an excellent box in the paper that explores them as well. But you should tell us why. Let's get to the main findings. Why GPs don't do or rarely do video consultations? The GPs listening will know that that you get a huge variation in the kinds of things that people want to see you about. Um, that there's a sort of stereotype that the only people who go to the GP are the ones with sore throats. But we all know that that there's all sorts of things that people go to the GP for, and Remote consultations can be very effective for certain things. So the classic thing is renewing their sick note, or maybe if the GP wants to just check that somebody's on the mend, having, having seen them face-to-face, give them a call a couple of days later, um, or doing a routine check on a stable chronic condition in someone that, that is known to the GP or the practice nurse. Now, those kind of things are very effectively done remotely, but they're also very effectively done by telephone. You don't actually need to see the patient. Um, And that's the interesting thing, is that the telephone consultation came out as something that is working very well for some things, uh, because it's quick, it's convenient, it saves travel, um, but also because the telephone is a very familiar technology, it's a very dependable technology. You know, in 30 years, Uh, as a GP, I don't think I've ever gone into surgery and found that the phone doesn't work, maybe once. But with video, it may or may not work. So so telephone is much more dependable. Uh, So if you take out all the consultations that you can do effectively by telephone, why complicate matters? Why use a video? So that's the first thing. You then have a a set of uh, consultations that are not suitable to phone. With most of those, the patient needed to be seen face-to-face. They needed the doctor to put a hand on their tummy or they needed to have a blood test or or a procedure uh, or some other reason why video would be no good. Uh, I'll tell you a good example is the diabetes annual review. It's all very well uh, to say, oh, patients could be taught to feel their own foot pulses, but actually that's not really very safe. Why not bring them in? give them an annual review, put your hands on their feet, make sure that their feet are okay. Um, so you can't do that by video, but you can do the three monthly review in many cases by telephone. So the added value of the video uh, was uh, was limited for, for almost all consultations, which is why the GPs not only aren't using them, but why they tried them and then abandoned them. What about patient attitudes towards video that came out towards in this? And then particularly around, I suppose it's GP attitudes as well, but in terms of relationships and that side of so important to general practitioners and um, and their patients. Well, one of the things that came out was that people don't really like having telephone conversations as the very first 
interaction between a GP and a patient or, or a nurse practitioner and a patient. But what they did say was, if I know the patient or if I've already seen the patient, I, I can ring them up and then you can continue uh, what we used to call relationship-based care quite well on the phone. And people were very mixed as to whether they felt that uh, video was like telephone or whether it video was like face-to-face. -face. You know, some people said, yes, I can get a great relationship with the patient by video. Others would say, uh, no, I have to see them face-to-face. -face. It's a bit of a personal thing. It depends on the, the patient. It depends on the practitioner. Um, and likewise, attitudes varied hugely. I mean, it, it, you know, you can sort of use some stereotypes, the smartphone generation. You'd think that they'd all be very keen on, on video, but that's not necessarily the case. And, and, you know, some elderly patients, some people from minority ethnic groups, very keen on, on um, remote and on video. Uh, but, but broadly speaking, uh, younger people were keener on video. But, but, you know, this wasn't a quantitative study of attitudes. And so, so although we interviewed, I think it was 121 people, that's still too small to start saying this percentage of people are pro or anti. It wasn't that kind of study. Yeah, lots of subtleties and nuances here. But we have, perhaps should mention some of the counterexamples where areas where it was felt to add value. The, the, the commonest word that came up in our interviews with, with GPs was the word eyeballing. And I think that's a great, a great, great word, because when you do your medical training, you know, even as, as, as a sort of finally a medical student, you can eyeball a patient and you can say whether they're sick or whether they're not. And that came up particularly when people were talking about out-of-hours care, where you often don't know the patient, you've never met them before. Uh, and it's often, though not always, for either a child or an elderly relative. Uh, and we've all been in the situation of, of, of hearing a, an anxious parent and then actually seeing the child uh, and either they're jumping around the room, in which case you know they're really not that sick, or they're quite floppy um, and, you know, um, you know they're, they're not moving around much. And, and just by that eyeballing, you get a really good um, uh, indication as to how serious it is. So, 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 so eyeballing, particularly in the out-of-hours situation. I had one uh, conversation actually with a, a, a GP with a care home. This is another uh, example where uh, care home patients, uh, eyeballing is, is, is often quite useful, but uh, the GP described uh, someone in, 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 you know, late at night, so it wasn't a regular care home member of staff, but perhaps from a bank uh, a bank staff member uh, and using a tablet and saying that the patient was unconscious and, you know, could the GP rush round? Uh, and the GP said, well, can you take the tablet into the patient's room and I'll have a, have a look at her. And the member of staff couldn't use the tablet very well. It wasn't something that they were familiar with. And so somehow hadn't been able to get the, hadn't been able to get the patient on the screen. And so the GP was trying to talk the member of staff into turning the tablet round to point at the patient so she could see the patient. And she was talking this through. And then the patient perked up and said, oh, is that you, doctor? <laughs> um, and it was a great example. And, and then finally, the, um, the member of staff did manage to flip it around. And the, and the GP then made eye contact with the patient and they said hello. And then they realized that the patient wasn't unconscious at all. So I think there's, there's, we've got a few of those lovely anecdotal examples of where you can really bring the GP into the room 
Um, but also you can assess um, and also reassure uh, the member of staff who's there on the ground that things are okay because you have eyeballed the patient. A couple of other little areas where there might be counterexamples. You mentioned, I think, pe- people with mental health issues or people with communication challenges. Well, yes, but and that can go either way, really. Um, as we all know, mental health challenges uh, come in many shapes and forms. Some people really want to see the GP in person. Some people don't. When you're feeling very depressed, you may or may not want someone to actually have a visual image of you because you won't be looking your best all that kind of thing. Uh, And so one has to sometimes negotiate with patients as to whether they'll turn on their video, for example. Um, Some patients, um, some patients with autism, for example, really don't like going into busy rooms, busy buildings with lots of people, lots of lights, lots of noise, and they prefer to connect by video. Um, But Uh, Oh, yeah, the communication problems. Yes, it it depends on the communication problem. We've had people when we when we put our results out on Twitter, the most common response was from people who are hard of hearing. Did we remember to say that hard of hearing people like video rather than phone? And actually, when everybody's wearing masks in the face to face consultation, a video when you don't have to wear a mask can be really helpful. So that that kind of communication uh, problem or challenge, video can be a a positive solution for. Um, On the other hand, there's also all the issues about uh, the patient's digital literacy. As I've said before, uh, picking up the phone is something that almost everyone can do, whereas getting connected by video requires higher levels of digital literacy. So if you've got cognitive impairment, that can be quite difficult. Having said that, another thing that we found was that, uh, you know, your frail elderly person with multimorbidity often had a relative who wanted to be there when when they connected and and was actually using the relative's smartphone or tablet. So the fact that someone's 84 and has got lots of things wrong with them doesn't mean that they shouldn't be offered a video appointment because they may well have a son or a daughter or nephew or something who who can connect them up. There's a tremendous amount in the paper and um, I will encourage anyone to to take a look and it'll give them, a, I think, a very good idea of where video could be useful for them in the future in their own practice and policies and locally. Um, and of course, open access so everybody can get to it. I'll, I'll just maybe get you to wrap up in a minute, Trish, but there was a, there's a nice quote at the end from Tudor Hart, um, a lesser known one, but we can't go too far without a Tudor Hart quote, that primary healthcare is doing simple things well for large numbers of people few of whom feel ill and i wondered if i'd get you to maybe just to summarize now just the, the kind of where where you what the state of play is with video consultations now and maybe where we're going to go next well i think one of the things that people said when we when we released our pre- press release last week and when we put out the link to the paper is a lot of gps responded saying well you're right i don't use it very much but i don't want you to take away the potential for using it Uh, So GPs wanted to be able to use video uh, for the patients where things would be helpful. Um, And that is hard to be very, it's hard to be explicit and and rigid about that. There's there's an example in the paper of a, I think it's a trainee who managed to talk a patient through self-examination 
uh, of the abdomen, young patient with appendicitis, and the, and the GP used video to show the patient their own right iliac fossa, if you like, or check that the patient was feeling in the right way. And the patient palpated and said, yeah, that's where it's tender. And sure enough, they had appendicitis. So, you know, those kind of things. But, but you probably wouldn't have dreamt that one up if I'd said, well, where would video be most useful? But I think what I would suggest to policymakers is that there are certain areas where the GPs and the patients say, this is really helpful. It's really adding value. The, the out-of-hours functions, particularly the care homes, let's put the resource into strengthening video consulting, but also skilling people up in those particular settings, in the out-of-hours setting, in the care home setting. Um, and also, actually, one thing we haven't mentioned is when the GP is shielding. We've, we've got, um, as we all know, a workforce crisis. There are GPs who are sort of getting into their 60s who perhaps have a, a chronic condition themselves uh, and who would still do consulting, uh, but a little bit concerned about, you know, catching infections. So why not set those people up to be part of the army of, of GPs who are going to be working fully remotely and let's get the, those GPs uh, supplementing the face-to-face -face delivery in, in creative ways. I think it, 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 it's logistically possible, but it would need a bit of set-up resource. Trish, that's been really wonderful. A very um, concise and interesting summary of a very important paper. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. <laughs>